Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every week is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. Our topic this morning, right out of the front pages of newspapers, streaming services, TV, radio, everywhere. It is the coronavirus. We will speak to Dr. Bettina Fries. She's chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at Stony Brook University's Renaissance School of Medicine. Take down, seriously, have a pencil and paper ready. Take down all the information you need. We are here to answer some of the questions that you have about this coronavirus. How serious is it? What's happening with the vaccine? We'll try to get to all the answers before we leave you this morning. So whether you're about to hit the road for an early run, preparing for a sunrise service, or just relaxing on the Sunday, thank you for joining us. We'll talk coronavirus next on this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this timeout on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. My guest this morning is Dr. Bettina Fries. She's chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at Stony Brook University's Renaissance School of Medicine. When we're talking coronavirus in recent days, Long Island hospitals have been working with the New York State Department of Health in trying to shut down this virus. Let's find out the latest. Let's say good morning to Dr. Bettina Fries. Doctor, good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Doctor, help. <laughs> We've got a lot of questions, a lot of concerns about the virus that's going around. Let's start at the beginning. How did it get started? What do we know? So what we know is that this is a newly emerging virus. It's a coronavirus. And uh, this is a virus that was prior to December not infecting humans. Um, probably originated was probably a bat virus, so it was probably a virus infecting bats, and maybe there was an intermediate host, and it, it jumped from the bat virus. Basically, it mutated and all of a sudden could uh, infect humans. And now it's basically infecting humans, started out in China, um, was very successful there, and now we have this virus all over the world. And this virus is related to um, the MERS virus and is related to the SARS virus. They are all kind of the same family. Um, and um, both of these other viruses also cause a very serious um, respiratory, um, upper respiratory, lower respiratory infection. Doctor, are there symptoms that are similar to the flu or how do you know that you should go get tested? Well, the problem is it kind of looks like flu. People develop fevers, they develop cough, um, some develop headaches, and uh, then they basically come to emergency rooms and are usually um, evaluated. Um, the doctors will look whether they have signs of a lower respiratory infection, meaning that the virus has infected the lower parts of the lung. And um, they will rule out all of the common infectious agents that we usually uh, look for, so all the other viruses. And at the moment, we're still in flu season, so that's actually a sort of very common confounder, so it looks exactly like flu. And if this is all negative and the patient is, is sick and there's no other reason to explain why the patient has these symptoms, then we will present the patient to the Department of Health and um, rule out that this patient is infected with um, COVID-19. 
All right. Now, doctor, you mentioned COVID-19. Is that the same as the coronavirus? Is Are there other yeah. types of virus or is there no, more viruses similar to it? No, the virus was initially just named novel coronavirus. And then I think February 12th, they basically coined this name COVID-19. And that's the current name of this virus. Okay, now uh, I understand that uh, Stony Brook Hospital and um, are among several Long Island hospitals that are working with the New York State Department of Health. What what are you guys doing? What is this combined effort? What's your goal in this combined effort? So I think all hospitals um, work with the Department of Health because these patients could show up in any emergency room. So it's not only our hospitals, all the other hospitals as well. And um, there are defined guidelines who you should consider. Uh, and then um, you have to examine the patient. You have to make sure that you have not overlooked any other diagnosis and that you have ruled out the other diagnosis. And if um, you've done that, then there is, then we at, at the current time still call the Department of Health and arrange for testing and send the testing up to Wordsworth. All of this may change in the next couple of weeks if um, the hospitals are all trying to ramp up, the state is trying to ramp up testing, and eventually I think um, maybe not all hospitals, but quite a few hospitals in New York State will probably do the testing themselves. Doctor, what was the delay in getting uh, the, the materials to conduct the tests? And not only here, but across the country. Well, you have to develop a test that is um, that uh, has a good, um, you know, that is um, sensitive enough for you to detect the virus mm-hmm. and is also specific enough that um, when you say somebody has a COVID-19 infection, that it actually is a COVID-19 infection. What people have to realize, there are other coronavirus infections that are so-called common colds. And so we have to make sure that the test that we use um, specifically diagnoses this COVID-19 infection and doesn't confuse other viral infections. So that was part of the reason and you know, um, I think all of this is now sorted out. But initially, this um, test was developed in the CDC, and then there was a lot of pressure to ramp this up and, and to make sure that this test can actually be done by other Department of Health. And the next step will be that this test can be done by commercial labs, and they're working mm-hmm. on that. But it just takes time. You want to have a high-quality pro- um, product and you want to really make sure that you make a correct diagnosis. You're listening to Dr. Bettina Free. She's Chief Division of Infectious Diseases, Professor of Medicine, Molecular Genetics and Microbiology at the Renaissance School of Medicine. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Doctor, how does one uh, get the virus and what's the steps after you think you have it? What do you do? So you get it um, just by basically being in the close vicinity of people that have um, the virus. And it's um, it's an airborne um, um, infection, so it's droplets. And these droplets fly a certain distance, and then they basically um, land on your face or on your fingers, and then you touch your mucosal membranes, and then the virus enters. 
Um, so initially, the patients that we diagnosed were all patients that had a traveling history to countries where there were outbreaks. But now we have seen community spread in the United States, so we have diagnosed patients that have not had a connection with uh, either a travel to um, to Italy or Iran or to China. And so um, in the newest cases, um, these are so-called community-acquired, it's become evident that the virus is basically already spreading through the community and the problem is that some people that have the virus probably don't know that they have it. They only have a very mild cough, but they could still potentially be infectious. And that's why the Department of Health, when they make a diagnosis on a patient, they become very aggressive about trying to isolate all the pa- all the people that were in close contact with that patient in order to prevent further spread of this virus into the community. So now, Doctor, where it, and correct me if I'm wrong, initially when we, we found out about it, it would seem to be that they, we, we shut down people coming from China where it was originated in other countries. Uh, are we now in a scenario where travel is an issue? Do you really have to focus on where you're traveling right now before you make a decision um, where you can go internationally or maybe domestic? Well, um, so there's still countries, um, there's so so-called level three, level two uh, countries where the risk of acquiring is much higher, the risk of being exposed. You know, you still can't travel to China, basically, and there's still uh, very strong recommendations not to go to Iran or to Italy. Um, and um, and the exposure in those countries is going to be, the exposure risk is going to be much higher because they have many more cases than we do. Um, in the United States, I think the latest case number that we have is something like 177. Um, so it is spreading in the United States. More and more states are reporting cases. Um, and um, there may come a point where it doesn't make a difference whether you're here or in uh, in um, in Italy. But we're actually trying to really hope to very aggressively contain the spread of the virus in this country. That's why um, in all the states, the Department of Health is really um, trying to um, tra- track down all the people that are in close contact with the cases. Doctor, what's the biggest challenge here uh, in trying to keep this contained? Is it making sure people are tested? Is it uh, making sure that we don't cause people to panic and you're not swarmed with of folks who just think they might have it and therefore slow down the testing? Uh, what, what, what's the biggest challenge here? Well, one challenge is to ramp up our capacity to test. Um, that's one challenge. So once we can test in every hospital or in many hospitals and we don't have to ship this to the Department of Health, um, we're going to be faster and it will be a little bit easier. Um, so that's one challenge. The second challenge is um, that once we detect a case, to very aggressively prevent spread around that case. So, you know, if you have a patient 
that presents with this infection, then the Department of Health is going to try to find out where was this patient, who was this patient in contact with, um, the healthcare providers that took care of this patient, did they wear protective equipment or did they not know, was this patient undiagnosed for some time. All of these things will matter in order to contain it. And, you know, all the direct family members are always the highest risk for anybody you live with that you basically are in contact with that are closer to you, like within a three-foot circle, they are the highest risk of um, basically um, acquiring this infection. And the concern is that, for instance, a lot of children are not going to be that symptomatic. So if they go back into school and then they are infected, they may not even know, and then you could see infections in the school and then you could have a much wider spread. Whenever you have a viral infection where the person that is infected doesn't know that they are infected because they are not that symptomatic, then it's much harder to contain that kind of spread because you have the people walking around in the community unknowingly spreading the virus. Mm, Understood. Doctor, what are some of the effects, as you mentioned, on kids who who might contract the virus or the elderly that might con- contract the virus as opposed to um, a, a middle-aged person or, or a younger person? Is, is there any quicker effects or, or more problems with, with you know, conduct, con- uh, getting the virus based on age? So based on this last big publication that was um, published just a week ago, Um, where they analyzed, I think, over 70,000 cases in China, it's pretty clear that the people at highest risk of having a poor outcome, a bad outcome, are the same patients that have the highest risk um, with flu. And these are the elderly patients over 65. These are patients that for um, for any reason are immunosuppressed. So these could be patients that are just actively undergoing chemotherapy. These are patients that are on immune modulatory drugs that weaken their immune system. Um, and um, patients who have a lot of comorbidities, especially if the comorbidities, that means that they have other diseases, especially if these diseases involve the lungs, then those patients are also at a higher risk. And if you look at the death cases um, in the United States, um, the outbreak in in Washington State, that was in the long-term living facility. So these were elderly patients, and they are the highest risk. So in this analysis that, um, that was done on all of these Chinese um, patients, the, um, the highest um, mortality rate were in patients that were elderly. And we would expect the same here. And in all the studies published so far, they published very few cases in children under 15. Mm. So, and this is something that we have consistently seen. So we assume that these kids do very well and and um, they're fine, but they may contribute to spreading it. So if you have a case in a family, then you would not only concentrate on the patient, but you would look at all the other family members and make sure that they are not infected without knowing it. And you would, you know, um, quarantine these people at home so that they don't further spread the virus. Dr. Fries, is there a vaccine 
I mean, we hear treatment, we hear testing, but I, I'm not sure that I, I've heard of a vaccine that will cure this. Is there a vaccine, and how plentiful is that vaccine? There is no vaccine. There, there are efforts on the way to make a vaccine, and um, we know the structure of this virus, so we know um, what surface structure we would like to target, and um, there are, um, you know, consorted efforts on the way both in the United States as well as in China to very fast develop a vaccine and uh, try it out in animals and um, and then do the first human trials. But we don't have a vaccine yet, and it takes time to make a vaccine. You cannot put a vaccine on the market without thoroughly testing a vaccine. Um, there are several companies, at least eight or so, who are working on um, on uh, lead targets to develop a vaccine. Some of them have already done animal experiments and are planning to do the first human experiments. But even if you have a vaccine, then you have to produce the vaccine, and after you produce the vaccine, then you have to de- deploy the vaccine. That means the vaccine has to be sent all over the world. And you don't only need a few doses, you need hundreds of millions of doses. So this is a huge effort, and this will take time. So, doctor, then how is it treated if there's no vaccine? So right now we treat these patients symptomatically. We will, um, if they're sick enough, many patients don't need to be admitted to the hospital. They will just be sent home and will be told not to leave their home, so not to spread this virus further, and they'll just take... Um, some medication to um, to treat the cough and some medication to lower the fever. And other than that, you will tell them to drink um, lots of fluids and eat healthy. Um, and the few patients that need to be admitted um, with a more serious um, clinical presentation, they will... Um, be treated symptomatically, so you would make sure that they have enough fluids. In some cases, you may have to intubate the patients and help them with um, breathing or you have to give them oxygen. There are some investigational um, drug trials going on, so there are some drugs that are already FDA approved for other indications that in, in the laboratory have shown some efficacy against this virus. And those um, drugs you would potentially use in those patients if they would develop real serious complications. So then under that scenario, doctor, they would just, uh, they would be treated almost like if you had the flu, you take, uh, you know, uh, different uh, juices and waters and, and whatever medicines you have to let that pass through, and then you would be okay. Am I correct? Right, that's for the majority. So over mm-hmm. over eighty percent of the patients are going to have a very harmless presentation. Gotcha. And um, and then a smaller percentage of of patients are going to present with a with a more serious um, uh, um, clinical picture, and they may have to be admitted to the hospital. Some of these patients may need oxygen. Some of these patients could potentially even need to be intubated. Um, some of these patients develop super infections with bacterial pathogens. That's very easy for us to treat. And um, with respect to the virus, we don't have a specific treatment, but we have some medications that um, 
that are already FDA approved for other viruses that could potentially have some efficacy and those medications would in some selected cases um, you would use these medications. There's also a big clinical trial that um, was just um, started. Um, there's one American um, clinical trial that's um, directed from Omaha, Nebraska. That's an NIH-funded trial. And um, that trial is testing specifically one medication that was um, developed um, for for the Ebola virus. Um, and that medication um, um, is now in a, in a sort of in a um, in a organized clinical trial being tested whether it has efficacy. So in some cases, um, patients that are admitted to American hospitals may be um, um, potentially um, offered to participate in that clinical trial. Dr. Bettina Fries is my guest. She's the Chief Division of Infectious Diseases, Professor of Medicine, Molecular Genetics, and Microbiology at the Renaissance School of Medicine. We're talking about the coronavirus inside this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When we return, more information on the coronavirus on this edition of New York Sports and Beyond. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's return to my conversation with Dr. Bettina Fries, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at Stony Brook University's Renaissance School of Medicine on 98.7 ESPN. Doctor, we've seen um, and we've watched the news and we've noticed that masks are hard to come by now. Why do you wear them? Is it necessary to wear them? Give us the, the real details about folks wearing masks. Do we need them? No, it's not necessary to wear them. We need, um, so, um, and the recommendation is not that everybody should run around with a mask. Um, we have um, specific protective um, equipment for healthcare providers that take care of these patients are in close contact with these patients. They actually need a very specific mask. They're called N95 masks, and they need also a shield over their eyes or goggles, and they wear gowns and gloves, and uh, these patients are placed in special rooms. Um, but, you know, the general population should wash their hands, should cover their coughs. They shouldn't cough into their hands. They should cough into their elbows. When you're sick, you shouldn't go to work. You should stay at home until you're healthy again. And um, and wash your hands frequently. Surfaces at home that are constantly used should be washed frequently. And... Um, and that's the recommendation that we are making right now. And you should, you know, very carefully read the travel advisory that's given out by the um, by the State Department in um, in collaboration with the CDC, which specifically instructs people to reconsider travel to certain areas. And that is very important uh, because and and that it changes moment to all moment, right, doctor? <laughs> changes all the time. So cdc.gov has, um, when you when you go into the CDC website, you can go directly to coronavirus, to COVID-19. You can click on it and you can look at their travel recommendations. The travel recommendations change constantly. And, um, and we anticipate that this is going to continue like that. Dr. 
Uh, I saw recently in an article mentioning other diseases like SARS and MERS. Could you explain what those are and their relationship to the coronavirus? So SARS and MERS are also coronaviruses. These are all viruses that um, basically belong to the um, belong to the, the the same group of viruses, and um, and uh, these um, this virus, the COVID nineteen virus, is closer to the SARS virus than it's to the MERS virus. Um, the MERS virus originates um, uh, has its reservoir in camels. So this is a virus that is uh, endemic in Middle Eastern countries and every once in a while there causes sort of outbreaks of um, of severe um, lower respiratory infections so patients presenting uh, quite sick to the hospital. And it um, doesn't seem to spread that, that efficiently because usually these outbreaks are very contained and are not... Um, like now, you know, 97,000 patients, but are just a few hundred. And SARS um, caused um, an um, outbreak in China in 2003. And at that time, um, um, there was um, the patients also presented with these severe um, kind of um, lower respiratory infections, um, very similar to what we have seen now, but these patients were actually on average sicker. And the mortality of SARS is about 10%, and the mortality of MERS is about 35%. So both of these are have a much higher mortality than the COVID-19 virus. Um, but it looks like, at least for SARS, that most of the patients were infectious when they were sick, and there was not that much... Um, spread in the community because you could immediately screen for patients. So patients that were sick, you told those patients to stay at home, and this way you could basically break this community spread. And that seems to be different with COVID-19. We have patients that are not symptomatic that also spread the virus, and that's Mm. more difficult to contain, and that's a little bit more similar to flu. So anyway, so this is a group of viruses um, that um, that all belong to the same family, and um, um, they look very similar under the microscope um, genetically. So if you look at their DNA, if they look at their genome sequences, this virus that we're looking that we're talking about now, the COVID nineteen, is is closer related to the SARS virus than to the MERS virus. So does how you treated those two viruses, viruses, SARS and MERS, does that kind of give you an insight, a game plan, for lack of a better phrase, on how to tackle the the coronavirus, 19? It gives us um, sort of some hint, first of all, some of these um, viral medications that I was referring to, they had already been tested in animal models um, of these viral infections and had shown some efficacy there. Um, So that is um, true, for instance, for um, the Kaletra, which is an HIV drug, an old HIV drug, um, that had shown some efficacy against, um, against these other viruses. So that's why people thought, okay, let's try it with a COVID-19. The other thing that we have learned from these viruses, we know how these viruses enter into cells. 
We know what receptors they use in order to enter into cells. So that gives us some hint what kind of surface structure on on the outside of the virus we try um, to target with a vaccine. And, um, and um, that is similar. So these spike proteins, which are these surface, mole- these surface structures on the outside of the virus, that's what we're going to uh, target, or that's, what, that's one um, target for um, vaccine production. And that data, um, we know from SARS um, that um, this is a good vaccine target. Dr. Fries, uh, I'm going to ask you a, a kind of a weird question, but I'm curious. Uh, this is obviously very serious. We're talking about people's lives here, but you and your colleagues have studied this throughout your career. How fascinating is it for you and your colleagues to answer this challenge of trying to deal with this, even though you see new things every time you turn around? And there's many, uh, I'm sure, different uh, structures and, and different diseases and things that we don't even know about that, that you and your colleagues tackle. What is that like? What's the challenge like for you and your colleagues individually to, to match wits with this, almost like a chess match with this disease and your, your expertise and your, and your education and your knowledge? So I'm an infectious disease specialist. So that is a subspecialty within internal medicine. That subspecialty exists in adult medicine and also in pediatric medicine. And when I chose um, to become an infectious disease doctor many years ago, we were in the midst of the HIV epidemic. Mm-hmm. And um, and you sort of, when you cho- choose this subspecialty, you have this feeling that you are in a subspecialty that every couple of years has to deal with a completely new challenge. Mm. A couple of years ago, we had a Zika virus spread, and we were talking about, you know, all of these children that were being born to mothers that uh, had Zika virus infection during their pregnancy. And so every couple of years, we have a completely new disease. We have to come up with ways how to prevent the disease. We have to come up with ways how to treat the disease, how to, um, how to um, contain the spread of the disease, and how to prepare when, you know, these new pathogens all of a sudden emerge. Pathogens don't need visas. They, they, they don't have passports. They just travel around the world within, within weeks or months. You can have a pandemic that starts somewhere in some corner in this world, and all of a sudden the entire world uh, has to deal with this new infection. So in a way, it um, is exciting that um, we basically, we infectious disease doctors chose a, a subspecialty that, you know, is never boring. It's <laughs> every couple of years a completely new disease. And I think in ID, people have become, you know, very oriented towards trying to be pragmatic when this happens and what do you do in order to prevent damage. And sometimes you cannot prevent the disease, but you can try to very aggressively contain it. And Mm. so you need to understand where the disease comes from, how the disease spreads, and uh, what measures make the most sense in the moment. So as you said, it's never a dull moment, and you enjoy that challenge, don't you, doctor? Yeah, it's never a dull moment, and it's a, it's a subspecialty that very closely works together 
with basic scientists who, you know, really study the details um, of these um, viral pathogens and other pathogens. Next on New York Sports and Beyond, we'll explore how you should look at sporting events that you attend with the virus still available. That's next on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's conclude our chat with Dr. Bettina Fries. Doctor, since we are ESPN, we got to talk a little sports in this, and we noticed that internationally various sporting events have been canceled uh, because of the fear of outbreak with the epidemic. I had a uh, one of my shows earlier in the week. I did a Twitter poll asking uh, my audience if, if they thought their sports – on-site experience would change with the virus and 70% of them said no, which is, which means that we're not having a pandemic and people aren't going to stay home from going to their favorite baseball or football games. <laughs> uh, but what would your thought process and suggestion be for those who are going to events? Now we talk about obviously washing your hands and using sanitizer, but you know, all the time, you know, when you're out and about, you might not be quick with your, with, to get to the bathroom to wash your hands. And you know, what are some of the, what are some, uh, uh, um, you know, what I'm trying to say. What What are some suggestions you would have uh, to people going out to events now, where you've got a large group of people? Your football, you got seventy thousand people. Basketball, you may have twenty thousand. Baseball, you got you know sometimes forty, fifty thousand folks. Yeah, I know. And in Italy, for instance, they're already starting to uh, cancel. They people have to watch the soccer games, which is you know at the heart of Italian pulse. Um, on on television, and there's the discussion what we're going to do with the Olympics. I think mm-hmm. we have to see how this how this pandemic evolves, um, whether we get it under control in time or not. I mean, when you're out in fresh air, your risk may be a little bit um, lower than if you have the same amount of people in a contained environment, like on a cruise boat. Um, but I do think if you are in 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 big crowds that um, there is concern that um, this will contribute um, to um, spreading of this viral um, of this viral disease. And you know, one of the approaches that the CDC takes when um, when they try to contain the spread is to discourage um, community gatherings. I mean, it always depends sort of on the individual cases. You know, in New York State right now, we have 22 cases. That's not that many cases. If you have a situation like China, um, they didn't have um, uh, big sport events. Everybody stayed at home. and They closed their schools. So there, you know, we will be guided by what the the individual Department of Health are gonna gonna come up with. But there are scenarios if if the if um, you know we see many cases that um, these kind of gatherings may be discouraged. Yeah, I would think so. And and once again, it, it's going to be a case-by-case basis, and we just have to continue yeah. uh, to check the cdc.gov. And, of course, everybody's talking about it, so you'll have the latest information where you can find uh, you know, what, what's happening, what's going on, what, what things have been improved. And, Doctor, the, we talked earlier about, you know, trying to get and, and the long process it takes to get a vaccine. Um, do you think that will be something that could be done, uh, before this becomes a further outbreak? Or do you think that the way things are, if it stays the way it is right now and people are diligent 
in washing their hands and using hand sanitizer and limiting handshakes, especially with people who have colds, that we can kind of contain this until we are at a stage where we can have a little bit more time to, to, to you know, focus in and, and get this, uh, get, get a vaccine together? I think we don't. Um, yes, that's what the hope is. I mean, we won't have a vaccine within months. Um, mm-hmm. The hope is with all the um, efforts, um, you know, on the way that um, that we'll have a, um, identified the right vaccine within a couple of months. But then you still have to produce it and deploy it. So that takes another couple of months. Um, especially because we're talking about millions and millions of doses, so so you really have to then have a have a, a system in place where you can mass produce these kind of vaccines. Um, for the current uh, outbreak, we don't know yet. So with SARS, when the SARS outbreak lasted about nine months, and then SARS went away and never came back. So until now, we haven't seen SARS cases. We had this big outbreak in 2003, and then it went away. Um, and uh, we don't know how this COVID-19 is going to behave. Is it going to just linger in the population, and we're going to see flare-ups um, all over until basically almost everybody had this infection or uh, was vaccinated against it? Or is it just going to go away and never come back? We don't know that yet. And um, so I think um, there is enough cases now and enough fear that there is going to be a consorted effort um, between biotech companies and the NIH and, uh, and, of course, also the Chinese research institutions to really push the development of a vaccine against this virus. Um, the problem with all of these um, vaccines is that when this is an emerging pathogen, by the time you have a vaccine, a lot of times the pandemic has already sort of taken care of itself. And so there has to be um, public money made available. There has to be um, additional encouragement financially for an industrial partner to take this on because it's a huge risk on their side. Yeah, there's no question about it. Doctor, is it because of the fact that we're in the winter here in, in, in the in the east on the east coast that it, it it kind of does it make it better or worse? In other words, if this was coming out in the summer where you know you've got high humidity and and it's very dry, would that make it a, a, an even tougher scenario? Um. Not clear. I mean, um, if you look at the southern hemisphere, Australia, South America, they're starting to see cases too. They have summer. So um, the hope that the season is going to take, the change of season is going to take this virus away, I'm not so sure I would bet my first child on that. Um, (laughs) I think um, a lot of times these viruses, um, you know, if they really need the human host to spread, and we have no evidence right now that it spreads any other way than just between humans. So once you have enough people that had the virus and are immune to it, the virus can't really infect anybody new. And then because the virus needs a host, then it basically um, goes away. Um, But we're not there yet. Uh, And uh, since nobody, since this is a new virus, um, basically, it hits a population that is not immune, and everybody is 
potentially can just become infected with this virus. That's different from flu. When we get a flu epidemic, a lot of people have already encountered this this um, flu virus or they're vaccinated against it. So you never get the whole population. Um, uh, never, the whole population doesn't become infected. Mm-hmm. And that's different here. Absolutely. Last thing, doctor. Um, right now, for people who are listening, they don't need to run to the doctor if they don't have any symptoms that are flu-like symptoms, correct? They don't have to just run there just to say, okay, I want to make sure I don't have it. They should check in. If they have flu-like symptoms, then they should make an appointment to see their doctor. Is that correct, or am I in error? Yes, absolutely. We don't want everybody thinking that they have the COVID virus um, coming, um, uh, uh, running to the doctors. I mean, usually... Um, you know, the patients who present with these infections, the ones that we test are patients that are sick, they have fevers, they're coughing, they have signs of pneumonia, and um, then we evaluate them and make sure that they don't have everything, anything else, and if they don't have anything else, then we send the test. Um, the test that we have right now really can only test for presence of the virus. Uh, and um, we don't have a test yet that tests for whether you have antibodies to the virus. So after this whole pandemic is over, we're probably then going to go and screen people and see how many actually had the virus and didn't know about it and Mm -hmm. made an antibody without ever knowing that they were infected by this virus. And that will give us a much better handle on the numbers. Right now, we only see the patients that are sick. And then we count how many patients of the patients that are sick and present to the hospital actually die. And that's our case fatality rate. But we don't really know how many patients have the virus and are not sick. And um, these um, numbers could be potentially higher than we think. And, um, and that means that the virus could actually be have a lower case fatality rate than what it presents as right now. But right now, we don't have the capacity to test everybody who's asymptomatic. We just um, can't do that. So we have to focus on the patients that are symptomatic. And when we identify a patient, then we go hunt down all the people around this patient, and we will test them even if they are asymptomatic. Okay, so the main I don't want to have uh, people listening and have a pandemic on my hands, doctor, and people running no. over to their, <laughs> their personal physician. No. I heard him on the radio say I got to go. No, that's why I want. No. That's why it's so important that you're on this morning because there, you know, when you have something like this, doctor, the fear is sometimes greater than the disease itself. Absolutely, and people have to realize we deal with flu outbreaks all the time. And this is not the first outbreak we deal with. It's not the first outbreak in New York we deal with. Uh, New York State has a very good Department of Health. And, uh, and you know, we have plans in place um, how, to, how to deal with this, how to hunt down um, patients. And part of the reason why these Department of Health and why the CDC is, is ramping up um, all of their procedural um, organization is ordered to prevent a bigger outbreak. And in order to do that, we need to, you know, put um, procedures in place in all the hospitals. And that's what's really happening. Um, It's not because the CDC is panicking. It's because the CDC has to do a lot to prevent uh, a, um, you know, um, fulminant spread in the community. And, I mean, I think what what these last... um, 
decisions have shown is, I mean, the decision to close down the border and not um, let people enter from China has probably delayed um, the um, onset in our country and has given us some time to get prepared for it and to prepare better. So that was probably a very good decision. And and time is uh, really a, a key factor in what you do to try to find how to how to deal with this, isn't it? Yes, and and also to ramp up our ability to diagnose the disease. If you can't diagnose the disease, then it's very hard to do something because the disease. There's nothing specific about this presentation. It's not like measles where everybody, you know, you don't need a test. You just look at the person and you say, that's measles. It's not like that. This infection looks like any other infection. And so you need to have good testing and you need to, need to have availability of testing. And then you need to isolate these patients. And in these last couple of weeks, that's what the CDC has worked on to really try to um, get this testing into all the states and Within the states now, we are trying to even um, broaden our ability to test to other hospitals, and that's what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Well, Dr. Bettina Fries, thank you so much for joining us this morning. She's the Chief Division of Infectious Diseases, Professor of Medicine, Molecular Genetics, and Microbiology in the Renaissance School of Medicine, part of Stony Brook Hospital and Stony Brook Medicine. Doctor, thank you. We, we really... Uh, applaud you and your colleagues for the work that you're doing to try to keep this contained and to ultimately find a vaccine. And then we will look at this one day and talk about how this was one of those scary situations that could have blown, made, had major implications, but was handled in a timely fashion. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. That concludes this edition of New York Sports and Beyond. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening on the Larry Hardesty Show following Nick's Pistons. We'll see you during the week on ESPN New York tonight and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world producer, the legendary Ray Santiago, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right here, right now on 98.7 ESPN New York.